Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and today I have Mike Isratel on the show. Um, I hope everyone gives Mike extra love today, and I do as well, because he's up nice and early for us. Um, I imagine this is one of the first things on your kind of schedule today, and we have a good hour to get through some great content. So, uh, Mike, I did want to. Uh, I've been enjoying doing a little bit of a what's the kind of the per- the interviewee up to right now. In that, everyone I interview normally is kind of dieting training maybe a bodybuilder themselves and i know you're mini cutting right now and i think people like just kind of knowing where you are with things so i was just going to ask kind of how's the mini cut going how you like two three weeks deep now the mini cut has just ended it was two and a half weeks long wow um and i've uh lost quite a bit of weight it's uh, difficult to say how much because of water weight fluctuations and things like that I'll be able to say much more reliably in, you know, like a few days, maybe in a week, when I'm back into normal massing training and start weighing in regular, during regular training and massing eating. And then I'll be able to say, I probably lost about five to seven pounds of body fat during that time, which is really good. It clears the way for a lot of new gains. And, um, I'm deloading now, so it's like going to be a five-day deload, and a very, very easy deload, just two training sessions that entire time, both whole body, one like heavy-ish, like in the sense that like I can feel the resistance, and another one actually today, later, where I just literally move my body with absolutely minimal load, kind of just like a stretching, and uh, so on and so forth, just all the muscle groups, and... Uh, lots of sleep, hopefully, and plenty of food. Uh, maintenance uh, dieting uh, on a deload, as always. It's, a, it's an unbelievably common question that I do have it in the docket to address on the RPT uh, YouTube, but um, I, I have to answer on Instagram probably once a week, maybe twice. Um, and uh, and then I'm massing again, probably for something like 12 weeks, and then hopefully uh, take a little active rest and then probably gear in for another show show prep uh 15 to 16 weeks we have the show prep thing down pretty well now i have the pleasure of helping charlie with his prep he's actually here behind that very door um just kidding that's a closet um but uh he's um gonna be here and or sorry he is here gonna be competing in a week and a half and he is just like shredded. So a lot of the uh, ways that I've coached him, um, gotta be coaching myself. So it's gonna be pretty cool. Yeah, it's been really cool watching Charlie just kind of knuckle down. I guess from the outside in, it just looks like kind of, uh, what's the, he does his, um, the egg beat a toast and like uh, sausages and it's like oh this is how i get shredded so uh, but it's been great following him and he's looking like the last photos i saw of charlie just like ridiculous and i mean he's over six foot right and 240 50 pounds he's just, like, just under six foot he's like 511 and he's like 236 this morning and that's, right. this is very depleted 236 uh it doesn't look depleted because when he eats again he's gonna look really big so yeah. Um, yes, I was very, very much on track, uh, and at some point I probably discuss how we prepped him. It's actually preposterously easy on the diet front and the cardio front. Uh, so yeah, that's really cool. And then on, it's awesome to hear that you're also looking to compete late. I guess that's later this year that that will end up kind of similar time to from last year as well. 
probably yeah at a very similar time it's probably the very end except this time the die won't need to be as long because i really have all my data collected from the last dive and i know exactly what i have to do in order to show up in very good shape so. awesome yeah it makes it so much easier especially since you competed so recently a lot of especially in like natural bodybuilding people don't compete for like i mean for me it's like been four years now it's just like sure. uh sure. what was that like again uh so I, it's nice when you've done it recently and you kind of have all those data points you're like oh man like this journey is just going to be much more simple this time around 100%. I, on the point of i know you mentioned there um taking maintenance during a deload does did the study that came out the ice cap trial run by jackson pios had that did that impact your thinking surrounding i know kind of taking down to maintenance is a bit kind of because you're reducing training volume and potentially reducing cardio and things so your current diet might look like maintenance even if you were to follow it through but did that did jackson's work there change any thinking for you or uh, any approach to kind of when you do deload during like diets whether or not you take more if you were to diet through it like can just continue your deficit maybe it's a lesser of a deficit whether or not that was an option for some people or do you still think it's valuable to maybe bring calories up nearer to maintenance during that period great question um, um at rp we've been doing maintenance uh eating on deloads for good god maybe forever because nothing else actually makes any sense if you think about it if you do a deficit on a deload, the purpose of the deload is to reduce fatigue, and the deficit massively pinches that. So that's bad. If you're mass gaining and you do a deload, should you mass gain through your deload? Well, where's the training stimulus to shuttle the food into uh, anabolic processes? What well, doesn't exist? So you're just putting on fat, sweet. So with a bit of nuance, the average answer is just maintenance uh, on deload. And the cool thing about Jackson P.S.'s recent work is it kind of confirms a lot of that stuff. Uh, it automatically sets up a paradigm where you are kind of taking diet breaks anyway. Uh, and that's really good. And we don't do deloads in order to specifically take a diet break, but it sure lines up really well. And, uh, and again, uh, just to, for the folks listening, really be careful uh, basing a lot of conclusions on one study. Uh, Jackson's work is uh, very, very insightful and adds to the body of the literature but uh, i wouldn't go changing a lot based on one study because the uh, next three studies on the subject could could contradict his work potentially i don't think they will but they might and and then it'd be very awkward so i uh, gotta always be careful you know or the or the barbalo studies from brazil that could just get uh, completely washed away by you know accusations of data data grievances of various kinds and that could, you know, that's unlikely to happen with Jackson and his people. But, uh, you know, you never know. You never know with uh, any one study. So be very careful doing that. No, for sure. Um, it's tempting because Jackson's study was like it was very well done and everything but like yeah. you say there was only a handful of people in there um and they weren't like i don't know even if you were applying that to like contest prep or something they weren't there were a certain level of leanness like quite average level of leanness um so yeah it's and similar to you and i would have taken this from rp and from your teachings i'd been running kind of maintenance periods during deloads for a long long time with clients in the majority of my experience it was very positive for people um but i know some people didn't find it that way and they maybe found it kind of put a bump in the road if, if their yeah. calories had to come up and things so it's certainly something i've been kind of 
shifting to having maybe some days at maintenance and some days just they just continue dieting so there's less days at maintenance but it's yeah it's one of those <laughs> yeah i think it's like uh, if you deload for a week maybe the first half of the week in which you're training pretty hard still um you might have a, a small deficit there and i think that's probably okay but that last half of the week should probably be maintenance to really give you a breather and at that point, that maintenance eating just really, really supports the fatigue reduction. It's not even so much a word about muscle loss, but the fatigue reduction has to be very substantial. I think people forget that in a prep, even in a prep at the beginning of your next meso into prep, you should feel pretty damn good. You should feel like you have a meso of prep dieting and eating, or sorry, dieting and training left. And I think if you diet through the whole deload, you will find that you feel much better at the end of that week than you did at the beginning, but not good enough to go through a whole meso. And then you sort of think, oh man, this is a bump in the road. But then that, if you don't take that bump, uh, gee, you know, you, it's kind of like you, it's a very, 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 very uh, apt analogy here is stopping for gas. You know, if you, um, or, or, or maybe like uh, even better one is, you know, using the windshield cleaner thing to get the bugs off the windshield on a long, long trip up, uh, on the freeway. You know, you can, it takes an extra 10 minutes if you're stopping for gas to wipe the bugs off and you can choose not to. And like that, we absolutely will save you time right then and there. But like midway through the next gas station to gas station track, you're like, I can't fucking see anything. Goddamn dead bugs all over my windshield. I wish I would have fucking stopped. And then you might actually have to, I mean, maybe it starts raining combination of the bugs and the rain. You actually have to slow down and then you don't make up as good of times. So it will catch up with you. It's kind of like in your first half of prep. If you diet right through your deloads, you might be like, fuck, yeah, I'm way ahead of schedule. I mean, it'll be behind schedule because you'll have to like take a real deload week with a real maintenance eating plan because you're going to be total wreck. It's going to be six weeks out from your show. I mean, personally, I would like to be in a better fatigue state coming closer into the show than having to really clean up a ton of fatigue all the way at the end of the show and be like, shit, 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 shit. And then having to take a deload when all of your competitors are posting progress picks and saying, man, we're really getting rolling now. Fuck, I'm not getting rolling. I was getting rolling earlier, but now I'm in, in deep shit. I would like to reverse that process. I, I think deloads are maintenance eating are a real intelligent investment. And at the end of the day, it's a really easy solution to take the page, uh, a, book, a page from the book of, you know, Eric Helms and 3DMG and all those guys. It's just fucking die longer. You know, if you're saying, well, all these bumps of the road with deloads, I can't die for 13 weeks. Sweet, die for 16 weeks. And then, then at the that end of the, that 16 weeks is going to feel a lot better. And you're going to come into the show with a ton more momentum, a ton more prepared than 13 weeks where you diet straight through. So it's, uh, and you can say, well, what about 16 weeks where I diet straight through? Well, you know, then you'll really be fatigued and really fucked up. And that's really a stupid idea. So I think, I think one of the main reasons people diet uh, through deloads is just raw anxiety and impatience. That's it's just human emotions. If you logically scope it out, uh, Jared Feather and I have had this talk a few times where he's just like, he just gets real pissed because he's like, why wouldn't you do the logical thing, the only thing that makes sense, which is to diet uh, maintenance through a deload. That's the whole point of a deload. And, you know, if you respond to him as maybe one of his clients, well, maybe one of his friends, he's much nicer to his clients, of like, well, I just want to keep getting leaner. He's like, you're not thinking like three feet in front of your face. You're just thinking one foot in front of your face. And you're like, okay, that's totally true. <laughs> so at the end of the day, if you really give it some thought, you adjust the diet to make it longer. De deloading uh, should be mostly maintenance eating, and then at the end, it makes everything better. You're like, you know what? Thank, thank fucking God I did that because it really, really does pay off. 
yeah, it's definitely something that I've I've come to the position where I like plugging those in for someone at maintenance so that they have it. We have the time to take it maintenance. If they're behind schedule, that's the only time I'm like, ah, if we're going to take from something, <laughs> unfortunately, this might be where we take it from. Uh, I know actually, it's just interesting you talked about the fatigue. Um, and I know uh, Jackson has, he's posited the idea of actually taking the diet break or the higher days in the final week before the deload. So you like the, the highest volumes where you're pushing the hardest, so you can push even harder in that week, uh, which was interesting, but you've just made me think of the consequence of then having created a bunch more fatigue to try and get rid of, uh, which is just interesting. I don't know if that I've just thrown a, well, so an idea uh, at I, you. Yeah, yeah. Well, I have a very simple question for that sort of uh, thinking out loud. Was, was the point of pushing hard in a surplus? Or in, or in maintenance phase. Like in the literal sense, what do we accomplish? Well, we get great training. So, so training for what? Uh, for muscle building. I right, got you. So is that what we're doing during show prep? Muscle building? Like, no, we're trying to lose fat. Uh, okay. So if we had all those days in a deficit, we could push pretty hard, get a fuckload of fat off our bodies, and then during the dealer, we could draw fatigue. Okay. So then you're like, okay, that's good. But what if we tried the other way? What if we tried the way of we push hard with lots of food in the last week, okay? So we put on a nominal amount of muscle, almost, and we don't really lose any fat. And then what happens during the deload? Well, we have to drop our calories again, but then how do we drop fatigue with low calories? Well, that's severely impinged, that process. So now at the end of that whole process, after the deload, you put on a tiny little bit more muscle, but you've had some great pumps and some great training for that week. And then your deload didn't really drop a whole lot of fatigue. So you're in a situation where you're not really much leaner and you're pretty high fatigue. That's not, not your best option. I would prefer to die through that last week. It sucks. A hard training. You lose one to two pounds of fat. And then during the deload, your body composition doesn't change because you're in maintenance, but you drop a lot of fatigue and then you're ready to go again. Uh, so I think, uh, I think there's a tendency for people to want to like sort of, uh, weave back into like mass gaining training whenever they can on a fat loss phase like man fucking get this food in have great workouts okay great workouts that lead to what like you know great workouts are great like yeah sure like to build muscle again that's not your job right now you you know you get imagine getting on stage two percent not body fat but like relative to your competitors two percent fatter and uh but just a, a little bit more muscular and say 2% more muscular. Uh, that's how you lose body when you show shows. And this is something that folks haven't heard before, uh, as bears hearing. I think your audience is pretty keen on it. Maybe not everyone. Bodybuilding shows, especially if you're just getting started, you haven't competed yet, or you're a fan of the sport. Bodybuilding shows, as if you logically lay this out, um, being lean is a necessary condition for winning or doing well. Okay. Uh, being very large is actually not necessary, but what it does is changes the probability up and down. Being lean is like a gateway. You know, it's it's, it's kind of like um, how much money are you going to spend at a fast food restaurant? Well, the most important factor, the necessary one is, is it open? <laughs> because if the Taco Bell is closed, you can't spend any money there. It doesn't matter how much money you have or how hungry you are. Now, once it's open, necessary condition checked, then you have a choice of spending, you know, anywhere from a pound to 10 pounds. And it's totally, you know, 20 pounds if you're really, uh, you know, off season and trying to do some damage. But, um, 
you know, at the end of the day, that's not the necessary part is Taco Bell has to be open. So just the same way, in order to do well at a bodybuilding show, you can weigh 70 kilos, you can weigh 90 kilos. If you're not ripped, the judges barely even look at you. You know, like uh, if you're 90 kilos, except you have a nice film of water and fat on you, they just are like, hey, you've got a great physique. They'll talk to you after the show. They say, listen, you just, just got to get sharper and you'll, you'll do great. But you'll, you'll, you'll take sixth or seventh, whatever the last place is. But if you're like, you know, if you weigh 55K on stage and your your face has striations, you know, you're getting real high up there and, and lean guys when shows. So at the end of the day, when you're planning your deloading, your training and maintenance eating through the prep, you got to keep. Keep that in mind and think, okay, it, one of these things is going to get you ripped to shreds. Like, oh, yeah, dieting through the hard training. Well, that's it. And that's probably the answer. That makes sense? Or? Yeah, it did. And um, no, it made complete sense. And just the, the thought behind, yeah, what do you, what is the goal of this phase right now? It's fat loss and not muscle building. So it's kind of like, well, choose your battles uh, kind of wisely in that sense. And uh, it was interesting. The only thing I think people might, kind of talk back to about the the study that Jackson ran is I believe they didn't kind of the muscle loss was similar so I guess training performance was similar between groups so the group that actually took maintenance uh, periods didn't see kind of better muscle retention than the groups that just dieted straight through I wonder if that's related to the fact that they weren't as lean and if you were getting kind of contest prep periods where you're super glycogen, well, I mean, your glycogen's depleted, but you've not even got the body fat stores, whether that would have more of a severe impact, you'd see that more. Yeah, or it didn't meet statistical significance. Um, it was just a small sample, and the effect is small, but if you used that on more people, then, then it could meet that. Uh, and there could be a bunch of other factors at play, you know, even if the muscle loss doesn't occur, just higher fatigue. Uh, in general, can lead to bad water balance on the day of your show. You know, if you come into your show real fatigued uh, versus not so fatigued from a diet, you could have a very different look. And uh, that can, you know, you could have on a DEXA scan the same amount of muscle, but you could look stringy and kind of uh, and watery at the same time if you have high fatigue. But if you have lower fatigue, you could look full and round, very, very sharp and fresh. Uh, and even that can come down to your posing on the day of the show. If you're low fatigue, you have high energy, you're doing the pose, you're smiling and looking at the judges versus if you're barely struggling to hit your poses, judges can tell. Judges can tell. So one of the things they grade you on, a small thing, but it matters, especially for winning a show and especially in the natural federations and of course in the NPC and things like that, is turning pro. Um, it's not everyone's goal to turn pro. It's not on everyone's cards. But if you want to turn pro or you want to win stuff, they're looking for the kind of the consummate athlete, the consummate bodybuilder. They want you to represent the sport. And that means you're hitting your poses crisp. You're great at posing, at least very good. You're smiling and or have a confident facial expression and not like one of these. Because they're, they're really, you know, that is a thing. Um, they're going to put you on their website in a picture. They want you to look the part. Uh, a lot of times guys will show up like, you know, amateurs with just radical genetics and work ethic that just didn't practice their posing a presentation and they won't win they'll take second or third and they'll tell them hey listen your physique is amazing gotta get the presentation going it's it's an important part of the sport and it's not that important but it does make a difference and if you're really really fatigued i know folks listening to this have been there you're in the warm-up room or the pop-up room in the back and you're like i just want to fucking die can i just die i don't want to be here anymore and your physique could look fucking sweet but it, those things make a difference. And if your physique probably won't look as sweet as if you didn't have low fatigue, even if you didn't lose any muscle of all these things, uh, then your look could be very different. So I'm 
Hey, Pascal here. I just wanted to take the moment to talk about our membership site. Inside, you'll find a thriving forum, an extensive exercise library, courses, presentations, and research reviews. All I need you to do is hit the link in the description below and sign up. Yeah, I can definitely relate to that because I know edema is something I've suffered with in preps and my first prep where I wasn't doing any of these things. I was barely having like even refeed periods. My edema was much worse uh, versus this next time round. It tended to clear during actually the deload period. So I can definitely attest to that. Yeah. One one big thing is edema the day of the show um, can be very well modulated by how stressed you are psychologically, uh, not just physically. So it's a really good idea, even if you don't do, um, you know, glycogen loading protocol, which is fine. A lot of natural bodybuilders don't. You got to ease up on the diet. Multiple days before the show should be at maintenance. Jared's turned like, I don't know how many fucking dozens of people pro and he does out everyone um, because mostly to relax and get some good sleep and also psychologically just to try to chill. You know, these people are really nervous. It doesn't pay you at all to be nervous. I'm, I'll be going to Charlie's show here in a week and a half. Jared and I are both going with him. It's pro probably my main job is keeping Charlie as relaxed as possible during, uh, during the whole process. So mostly just be there real stupid jokes at all times making an idiot of myself which tends to relax people and uh i think you know if charlie's relaxed because it's the end of the day being nervous objectively for bodybuilding is real stupid this is fight or flight in powerlifting actually gives you power and in bodybuilding what the hell do you need power for you're on stage but it's, it's so funny my dad um and it doesn't in russian there's clearly clearly a term for this in russian posing but he doesn't differentiate between posing and dancing. So he just calls it a dance. He's like, has Charlie been practicing his dance? And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. If you, uh, if you have aliens inspect the sport of bodybuilding, you may very well conclude that that posing is, is a dance routine. It's a solo dance. And, uh, you know, good God, why do you need fight or flight for that? <laughs> you know, yeah. like there's nobody's hurting you. You don't need to have a lot of, you know, like a lot of oof. So it's one of those things where, like that all the work is done the day of the show, the day before. If you're super relaxed, chilling, relaxing, eating your food, practicing, posing, laughing, watching stupid hotel TV, uh, you know, you're going to actually literally look better. But if you're like, oh, God, my bodybuilding, are my glutes coming in? Look, if they're not coming in, there's shit to do about it at that point. Uh, the best thing to do about it is to relax and eat and sleep. So uh, that, that's that. It's, it's an important factor, I think. And if you're really, really highly fatigued, it's difficult to, to relax in the, in the physiological sense, uh, and that translates to psychology. But if you're really uh, not so high fatigue, you feel pretty good, it's easy to relax, and then everything kind of, uh, it's almost serendipitous, it all plays into itself. And that's kind of like Arnold used to say, you know, if you feel like the winner, if you convince judges you're the winner, if you're confident, they believe you. Uh, and there's not much to that, but there's something to that. And, you know, if you have high energy on stage or anything, you pose a smiling, crisp turns, the judges are like, no, like, if it's close, that guy's the winner. Like, he seems to think he won. I think we agree with him. So there's a lot to say for that. Uh, that face times are good times that they should be kept away from the show and they should be minimized as much as possible with maintenance eating and dealing with, I think, as a guy. Awesome. No, very well said. That was a good discussion. Um, right, we're getting to listener questions. So the first one is from Jack Bourne, and he asked, how do you incorporate horizontal versus vertical pulling when it comes to the upper back versus the lats? I've had quite a few people ask me about kind of back volume and kind of a lot of people are talking about like hitting the lower lats, the mid lats, uh, like the rear delts, the upper back, and they're kind of maybe a little bit confused. So I think this would be a good discussion. Yeah. 
mostly as a joke. I hate the term upper back because the lats are part of the upper back. You know, they kind of insert into your arms. That tends to be higher on your back. Uh, I guess maybe when people mean upper back, they mean like rhomboids, teres major, and trapezius, uh, mid traps, upper traps. Um, so there's a good question. You know, you would think like rowing hits your upper back more, but that's not necessarily true. If you row the one-armed dumbbell rows and you row to the hip, well, that's a lot of lower lat actually. And it, it's, it's really all about angles, you know, like it, it's, it's, this isn't fucking rocket science. So, um, you know, if you're, if you're pulling, your arms go back here. I mean, physically, what muscles have to be contracting? Well, it's like the, the mid back, upper back ones. Okay. And, and if, if your humerus goes this way, then it's your lats. And so you can do that with a row. If you, if you row to your belly, then, then you can do that. Okay. If the lats, right. If you do vertical pulling, it's largely the, very similar movement with your uh, humerus. So, you know, where do you feel it? Okay. If you, if I tell you bent rows to your tummy are for upper back, but you get a massive fucking gnarly twisted pump in your lower lats, which I do for bent rows, but clearly whatever I told you is fucking wrong. And that's what's being stimulated. If I tell you lat pull downs are for your lower, you know, lower lats and you, the way you do them, you just get a gnarly fucking pump in your rhomboids and traps. Ta-da! So depending on how you do your rows, particularly if you're pulling sort of to your chest area, upper tummy area, or if you're pulling lower, um, and depending on how you do your vertical pulse, if you're staying upright, if you're arching a little bit, uh, if you're bringing your elbows down, or if you're bringing them sort of back and down, that all determines where you get hit. And, and, and to be honest, man, I gotta be fucking real honest. I pay fucking scarcely any attention to that shit. I never seen a motherfucker where his lats are way big and his upper back's super weak. I've barely ever seen the reverse outside of genetics, which you hardly do shit about. People say, like, well, you know, Dennis Wolf had a big upper back and small lats. You don't think he knew that shit? You don't think he was trying to train his lats as much as possible to get him out wide? Of course he fucking was. There's just only so much you could do about that. And also, there's a there's a big difference between those muscles as far as MRVs are concerned. And, and you kind of just got to train the whole back as much as you can. You know, like if you, you can only train your lats so much. There's three hard sessions for, for your lats per week. At some point, any more rowing, a vertical pulling that you do the flat focused is going to be too much, but then you can do more rowing um, and probably not vertical pulling, but more uh, different kinds of rows that hit just very little uh, lat and more terrace major, more rhomboid, more middle and upper trap. And, and then you could pepper those in as well as you need them. So it's really about where you feel it, where the tension is, where the pump is, where the soreness is that you know determines where the stimulus goes. And then you sort of fill it in kind of like a, you know, like a child coloring or coloring book. If you really get a, a good bunch of good stimulus for your lats, you color them in, you're like, that's done. What else is left? You get the whole back left. Like, well, I can still bend roll a lot, but bend roll to the chest and it won't hurt. hit my lats much, but it will hit everything else. And now everything is really nice and stimulated. And I go from there. If I want to prioritize one versus the other, that's how I do it. So, so you know, yeah, vertical pulling tends to hit the lats more and the upper back less. Uh, and rowing tends to hit them either 50-50, but can easily be biased to hit the upper back more than the lats. But that's a lot of times up to execution and ends up being like sort of where you pull the bar and where you pull your elbows. If you're pulling the bar low and you're getting your elbows down and close to your body, that tends to convert most rows into They still a lot of times hit the upper back a lot, but end up hitting the lats a lot. 
On the other hand, if you're pulling, uh, you know, more up to your middle of your chest and stuff, and especially if your elbows are coming out a little bit more than down, uh, then you tend to hit, you know, the rhomboids and, and things like that. And, and it's pretty apparent, <laughs> you know, and I'll tell you this, if you can't tell what you're hitting in your back, you got bigger problems than assigning muscle loop volumes. You need to do a whole lot of just training hard, doing lots of pulling and really trying to work out that muscle connection and awareness so you know what's going on. And it's like trying to grow your outer quads versus inner quads when you can't tell what part of your quads even contracting. Uh, you know, good luck because all the data that we have, especially for quads, is like it doesn't really make much difference. So if you, if you think you're working on a part of your quad and you can really feel the mind-muscle connection there and even gets a little bit more sore, you're probably right. You probably are training that part of the quad more than the other. But if you can't tell and you're like toes in for outer quads, like, I don't know, your body could just be turning on a bunch of everything. And it's something really good that Coach Kassam said in one of our discussions on your channel, is the body's really good at compensating for shit. Now, I think you can, as a good trainer, you can rig that process so the compensatory mechanisms can make up for it. You have to have a limiting factor. But that's if you real good mind-muscle connection and really pay attention to it. I think if you don't, and you're kind of just moving around, a lot of things tend to take over. So if you're really worried about parts of your back, make sure that you can feel the parts of your back. And if you can feel the parts of your back, you don't have to worry about them anymore because you know what exercises you what kind of self-solving problem. I think that's very well said. I, I love the the simplicity of it, but actually it's like, I guess it's like Einstein saying where it's like as simple as possible, but no simpler. It's like, <laughs> where are you actually feeling the pump, right. the disruption? Because you might think it's for X, Y, Z, but if you're not feeling it there, it's very unlikely that anything is actually happening there. So sure. it makes it simple and actually really apply, like appliable where you don't have to have, I don't know, maybe a crazy biomechanics knowledge and anatomy of everything where actually you perform it and see where you're feeling it. You just and change your movement to try to feel it. If people ask another question, which is a perfectly fine question, but here's the perfectly fine answer. There's close grip manager dips. Are they for chest or triceps? Yeah. Well, motherfucker, you tell me. You tell me. Where you where you know, if, if you get three sets of close grip bench and your pecs are blown out of this world and your triceps are like, eh, you know, a little pump, what am I gonna do? Use my bullshit PhDs or whatever to tell you that I'm all technically for triceps. <laughs> what? It's clearly for chest, right? And if you're like, well, Maybe I can change my technique to make it more for triceps. Well, it doesn't take a fucking rocket scientist to do that. You just narrow your grip a little bit, take your elbows and push them in, and then and then bring the bar higher on your chest, and all of a sudden it's more like a skull crusher. Ta da! More triceps, right? Uh, and dips, same idea. You know, depending on how much you lean or how wide the bars are, in chest versus triceps. So a lot of these questions can be answered uh, just by the individual exploring what's going on. Awesome. Cool. Next question is from Krasimir, and he has asked uh, question one. Do you think the 20 to 15% body fat off-season range might be better than the 15 to 10% considering how much less likely muscle loss is to occur at higher body fat percentages? be very technical and a piece of shit. I don't mean this. There's no risk of muscle loss in off-season productivity. What you're talking about is a potentially smaller gain rate, not, a, not muscle loss. A slight difference between those two. But uh, yes, the answer to the question is yes, there is a possibility of that, especially for some individuals. I think um, if you get your best hormonal milieu, $1,000 word there, and uh, if you get your best training momentum and results in 15 to 20, like notably better than 10 to 15, fucking rock on. The only problem is 
if you're a competitive bodybuilder, you'll have to do like the two diet approach to your prep where you do a diet to get in shape and then you do a diet to step on stage. Um, one of Jared's clients and for folks interested, you could go to Renaissance Periodization YouTube and type in Dylan, Dylan White Natural Bodybuilding Jared Feather or some shit like that. It'll come up. Um, Jared has a client, Dylan, who competed in uh, natural physique just recently and he's got his whole competitive season actually ahead of him. So he's doing a bunch of natural shows. He actually won an NPC non-natural show overall for the uh, classic physique division because you know when you have striations on your striations they don't really give a flying fuck uh, if you're natty or not and uh, for him he did a double face diet to get in shape for the show because he he's 200 pounds on stage roughly um, and he's like well he's like 6'2 or something he's fucking enormous so I mean still fucking jacked and really really great look and he started his quote-unquote prep or his pre-prep diet at 250. He was as heavy as 250. And he's great, great productive training there and put on a shitload of muscle. And then all of a sudden, voila, he died it down. And it was, uh, it took it took two, two phases and he dieted for like 12 weeks. And then he took like a month or two of maintenance. And then he dieted for another eight to 10 weeks and actually stepped on stage. So if you're going to be in that heavier range, first of all, be able to justify it. That you actually have to have better training and uh, better momentum and all this stuff. Uh, because if you have perfectly good training and perfectly good seeming results in the 10 to 15 range, there's no reason to leave that range as a competitor. Because it's nice to be close to your, um, you know, within striking distance of a show, at least not super far away. And it's also sometimes psychologically a bit more motivating when you still look like a bodybuilder. And if you're off season and, and you don't have to tell people, you know, they don't, they come up to you in the gym, they're like, how's off season going? Damn it, everyone knows because I'm a fat piece of shit. Then sometimes, even when you look at yourself in the mirror, you know, like people ask you, like, what, are you getting good pumps? And you're like, honestly, I can't tell because there's a layer of fat so thick that I can't tell what pump or not anymore. Then it's not that great. So be able to justify that, that movement uh, into those higher body fat ranges. If, if you're not a competitor, shit, hold 10 to 20 up to even, you know, 22 is good. I wouldn't go any higher because you get permanent growth of fat and skin like me, and then you look permanently worse and still uh, struggle with body water the rest of your life for prep. But uh, up to 20% is pretty decent. It just has to be something that makes sense for you uh, as far as experientially. Like, that I just like my quality of training is just better at 15 to 20%. The results are just fucking, I just get stronger over time. Uh, and if that's the case, then yeah, that's, that's perfectly fine. That's really cool. Uh, really cool answer actually. And actually giving Dylan as the example is very interesting as well because I don't think I could even, I'd struggle to get 50 pounds over stage weight. I struggle to get to like 30 pounds over stage. So I'm definitely yeah. that other person who's like, yeah. I mean, for me to get up there, I can't even imagine how I'd feel. I just, I struggle enough to get up to this point. So totally. um, it's really interesting to hear about, yeah, the differences there. And this is the fir first time, well, I mean, I've only competed, I competed in 2017 since knowing RP and I did like the double pump. And in hindsight, I probably didn't need to because I am that person who can, just do one run so i'm doing that this time around yeah i could look at your physique and i can remember like one of the times you i think you were doing the double pump prep and you you were like three weeks into the first diet and had a clear tricep straight and you're like steve what are we even doing what? <laughs> what where do you need the double and that's you know man especially in natural bodybuilding it's a thing to be overly cautious it's not for everyone but some people are overly cautious really really take their time and that's one thing like jared feather is really big on um, rallying against is 
there's a time and place for long diets and double pump diets, but that time and place is not always. And Jared's really good about looking at a person realistically and being like, you're eight weeks out. And they're like, no, man, I'm like 16. It's like, no, you're fucking not. 16 of what? Of like half of that being maintenance? Sure. But like once you get into the diet, it's a good idea to present a really nice deficit. I think if you have like outlines of striations on your glutes, you're six weeks out. This is the, and people think like, okay, I've got glute striations and then I've got more weeks to chisel in. Fucking chisel one in. And also you're natural. If you spend six weeks with glute striations, you're losing muscle probably that entire time. Like if you're on a shitload of drugs, whatever, you're just killing yourself with the trend. But if you're, you know, who cares? <laughs> you're only reducing your lifespan. But if but if you're an addict, you're spending time being super lean, it's just not a good idea. And a lot of my research, Eric Trexler has personally been involved with and sites, shows like it takes a long time to even regain some of that muscle. You're gonna leave that range as a natural. So a lot of times it's it's you know, if you're looking if you're an honest 12 weeks out, man, that's a 12-week prep. And 12 weeks out, it doesn't look all that impressive. Uh, Jared Feather right now is like eight weeks, seven and a half weeks out from his pro pro debut. Does he look really good? Fuck yeah, abs, veins, lean. But there's none of that Charlie detail of tricep feathering. And they're training together right now. We're making a bunch of videos about them on the YouTube channel. And like, you know, Jared doesn't look as good as Charlie. And a lot of people are no doubt in the comments going to be like, Willie, the pro, well, they're both prepping and Charlie's crushing and Jared's behind. It's not behind at all. If Jared was looking like Charlie, he was seven and a half weeks out, it would just be a fucking amateur, stupid fucking movie. Because like, what are you going to do now? What are you going to do now? You're going to try to look like Marvin the Martian for seven and a half weeks? Like, good luck. Hopefully people know who that is. Uh, Marvin Falk, F-O-K. Um, he's Marvin Physique on Instagram. Is, Jared's leanest ever client, and maybe the leanest person of all time, starting to believe he's a guy that, uh, like, you, 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 Steve, what was the first thing you thought of when you saw Marvin's pics? It's just, it's like, uh, what was the, the walnut butt, like, just like, yeah. <laughs> like the nut. There's <laughs> like, his glutes. the striations just... that go all the way into the asshole, for lack of a better term. <laughs> like, I remember seeing him in, in real life several weeks before he won Worlds, obviously, um, and, uh, I remember chatting with Eric Helms before that because Eric and I saw him together at the Australia conference. This was some years ago. And Eric's like, Eric was super lean at the time too. He was getting ready for a show. And Eric's like, he saw Marvin in, in clothes from a distance and then some pictures. He was like, I, yeah, I'm like, I, I'm feeling him, but I've got my own swag going on. And then after a workout, they did a post on Eric comes up to me and he's just like, dude. And I was like, Eric, you look great. Eric had clear news stations. And he's like, no, this is like, this is something else. Cause like I was talking to Marvin. And I was like, your face, as every part of his face was strided and he looked like he was dying. And I was like, holy fuck. And like, that's a process. Like once you get striated glutes, it's three or four weeks later, hard dieting, you either look like that or you need to just step on stage. <laughs> and like eight weeks of that is for a natural bodybuilder, just a recipe for muscle loss and super high fatigue. Uh, some of that's genetic too. Not all of us have it in the cards. So it's one of those, you know, where there's a, you're supposed to look meh at the beginning of prep and 12 weeks if it gets you in shape you get your shape but some people look at themselves they look like man no, i need 55 weeks i need 68 weeks no you fucking don't i think it's a really good point because i think a lot of people like you said they know condition is rewarded so then they're like i'll put in more time because i need to have glutes like they see someone like marvin who they get these images and it's just like this is absurd and like you said i just i don't think everyone can get glutes like that. And some people get that crazy, just the glutes coming in like every single way. Yeah, and you're yeah, just yeah. like, 
I don't know if I can actually get there. I don't know if I'm being uh, kind of wrong in saying that I'm just not sure people can get there or if it just is more time, but I'm sure people try and try and try and they just, like you said, lose muscle, look worse and just look softer and stressed and they don't get there. Hi guys, Steve here. Just wanted to take a moment of your time to remind you of our online coaching service. At Revive Stronger, we pride ourselves on providing personalized service that will take your physique and knowledge to the next level. If you're interested, check the description and sign up. Cool. Uh, boy, we have one more question from Krasimir and he asked, uh, do you believe that maintenance phases can do a good job at reversing the body's metabolic adaptations related to cutting as a slight weight regain phase? I think that if you have like four weeks and you go into a slight surplus, you can reverse way more metabolic adaptations than if you just do maintenance. Yes, I do believe that. I think that's what he's asking, and that's what I'll yeah. be answering. I had a, um, I dieted last year for like 14 weeks, and then COVID canceled all the shows. So I did like a six week mini mass slash maintenance where I ate at a slight surplus. I gotta tell you, I started my 22 week diet and I was eating my clean food and I would stop halfway through meals at the beginning and be like, good God, I can't eat all this stupid fucking clean food. Like, uh, should I start cheating to eat enough? And I was like, you know, after 14 weeks of dieting, I was hungry. I was like, you know, I was like, man, I'm ready to eat. And just an ever so slight surplus fixed my ass up. Six weeks later, I had like zero diet fatigue. And I completely survived and knocked out of the park a 22-week prep after that. And if I had been at maintenance, I think I would have still been a little bit frayed, a little bit, you know, four weeks into that diet. The next diet, I would have been I could eat. <laughs> um, so I think that slight surplus from an evolutionary perspective, too, is very careful. It's very tenuous reasoning. But, um, you know, if you have a more food than you need, the body's mechanisms for essentially being prepared to be hungry really start to turn off because they're like, what, well, Jesus Christ, it's literally times of plenty. And if you have you think a month of you have 30 straight days of the body getting just slightly more food than it needs, man, a lot of that shit just turns down. But if you do maintenance, some days that maintenance is technically a hypocaloric because you're a little more active, you eat a little less than you thought. Then you know the body gets some mixed signals. And maintenance is great, but a slight surplus, if, especially if you're on short time, you can have three months, three months of maintenance will fucking heal damn near any diet bullshit. But if you have like a week, or sorry, a week, if you have four weeks or six weeks, an ever so slight maintenance is like one extra week of dieting to get that fat off. It's not, but it'll prepare you in a big, big way. So I think it, it's definitely a really good idea. That's really cool because um, I know even within, I think Menno pointed this out with Jackson's study, where the one group that uh, dieted, they got the weight off quicker because they weren't having their diet breaks, had then maintenance at the end, uh, like a chunk of, I think it was four weeks of maintenance. And then they measured metabolic markers for them as well. And it's like that four weeks of maintenance didn't appear to repair as much as you yeah. might expect or yeah, very little. So it was kind of like, oh, maybe like you're saying, if you've only got that much time, just put yourself like gain a couple of pounds or something of yeah. true weight and it will do a lot for you. Yeah, it's also like, uh, so when people ask, like, it's easy to be neurotic on maintenance, especially let's say between a pre-prep diet and a prep diet. 
Like, I'm a maintenance book. I'm still keeping it tight. You know, I'm like, no, 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 no. Should be thinking about the other yeah. way. I have my maintenance, but if I have a few cheat meals here and there, or if I have a little bit of food here and there every day, I really, really heal. Because um, the whole point is really, really healing. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a thing. It's, um, what's a stupid fucking analogy? Um, if you are a pilot and you're resting at the airport, you have two hours of rest between two really long international flights. Do you have a nice big meal and take a nap? Or do you sit in the cockpit and kind of check numbers and figures and have a snack that the stewardesses bring over? I don't know, man. If I'm flying 12 hours and 12 hours, wait, get my ass up out of that chair, walk around, stretch out, have a big meal, take a nap. Because then I come back, I'm extra prepared. You know, yeah, it might be the first hour flying, might be like, oh, look at that nap. What the hell, where am I even? Or, you know, like you're kind of in sleep, you know, mode where you, you kind of sleep in inertia. But after that, you're way better than you would have been if you stayed a little bit focused. So if I'm if I'm taking a break, if you're taking a break, break. Because the, the downside of, you know, let's say you gain two pounds extra fat over the course of a month. And that's nothing. It's nothing. But if you don't drop diet fatigue, fuck. You could be in a real shitty situation eight weeks out where you feel like you've been dieting for 16 already. And that point, I don't know. Yeah, I think that's it's so interesting because this relates to a lot of the things we've been saying just about, I see this, just that bodybuilder mentality where it's always just on, like, don't want to do deloads, don't want to take it to maintenance at deload, don't want to do this, like, if I'm taking a maintenance period, I'm like, maybe I'll be in a slight deficit during that so that I can still make a bit of progress. And yeah. it's like, it's that short-sighted, just wanting results short-term. Like, I, I battle it still, like, I'm sure you battle it now and then, Mike, All but the relax, like you talk there, every time I hear you talk about it, I'm just like, ah. Like it just calms my like taking an active recovery week next week personally. And I'm just like, part of me doesn't want to do it. I'm just like, ah, fuck it. I'll just continue training. I'm like, no, no, no I need to take that because I know it's going to set me up. <laughs> uh, so we have a question from Philip A and he is asking, would Mike ever do a full deload before full four full weeks of accumulation if he was seeing signs of MRV instead of manipulating volume? Yeah. Fuck yeah, especially systemic MRV. Like if my triceps are cooked, but everything else is fine, the triceps get half week of deload by themselves, recovery sessions, and then they're good. But if I'm like systemically overreached, like so like I am right now actually, I'm just starting to recover, that the last couple of nights of the mini cut, I woke up in the middle of the night like this. And normally I would be starving. I wasn't even hungry, Steve. I was hungry like almost zero times as mini cut. And because as soon as I started to get a low enough body fat slash a profound enough deficit for long enough to get mechanistically hungry, my fatigue was so high that uh, I, I was fight or flight that I wasn't hungry. I'd be up in the middle of the night like this. I'd be like, I guess I should eat so I could go back to sleep because I had plenty of calories. I should have some protein. Then I was like eating like salmon. Like, <laughs> and I only want to do this. And then I would go back to sleep and sleep okay. Um, it was just super high fatigue. And like, that's systemic, man. There's no, 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 just take the triceps off the, you know, off the front burner and drop systemic fatigue. Gotta drop everything. And no short of, I'm taking almost a week of deload and I'm doing almost nothing during that time and eating plenty of food and sleeping as much as possible. Towards the end of this deload, I'm even gonna reduce my amount of um, work work that I do. Like I'm, I'm way ahead on all my RP projects. So I'm just gonna back off for a couple of days. I'm just going to eat marijuana edibles and sit around looking, watching 80s movies and 
making nonsense out of it. it it's as funny as one of my recent hobbies. My wife and I have given to, uh, taken to watching movies from the 1980s. And uh, some of them are like, not the, not the famous ones, like the ones that were just regular releases then, you know? And uh, good God, some of the jokes just don't age well. Not in the sense that they're offensive, but it's yeah. just, just not me. They're like, oh, this was funny back then. This is awful. And the cinematography has caught up so far. Um, so, you know, I'll just get baked on marijuana edibles and just watch the shit and be like, I have no idea what's going on. So then when I come back to reality, I'm like super healed and super relaxed and fatigue is low and then I'm ready to be super productive again. So yeah, if you're fucked up and you're close to MRV systemically, man, it's so tempting. Steve, this weaves right back into the discussion you and I were just having about like, well, let's just take a couple of recovery sessions. I'll be good. Systemic fatigue a lot of times hangs in there. You got to take a real full week. The question is this, do you want to take a full week of dealer and have fucking gnarly four weeks of productive, amazing training? Or do you take half a week and then have a gnarly productive week and a half of training and then an okay week and a half of training and the last week and a half is like total dog shit? I don't know, man. It seemed pretty open and shut to me. And it's so tempting to do it the other way around. Um, right now, Charlie and Jared are training super hard and I'm eating food again and I'm in the gym with them because we're filming. I'm at Dragon's Lair, Vegas, like, I want to lift weights, right? But I'm like, no, idiot, don't do that yet because you're gearing up to do something really impactful. You really need to drop your fatigue. Um, but even like uh, we had when we had, or we, when you had Matt Jansen on, he was saying like, look, we push our athletes really hard and then we back off. And then we push them really hard and then we back off. Can you imagine being one of Jansen's guys? And people are like, oh yeah, work Matt Jansen. Oh, you're really fucking, really pushing it, huh? And they're like, no. This whole month is really not that hard. Like, what do you mean, bro? I thought he fucking coached people real hard. Like, he does. But right now we're resting. <laughs> it's like, resting? Like, yeah, motherfucker, you don't always push. Uh, you know, and, and, and to sort of paraphrase Thomas Sowell, do you think you're among the first million people to get the idea that if you just pushed harder all the time, you'd be better than everyone? You're not. I mean, it's not that, it's not an intellectual revelation. Uh, you know, like, it's like the sign of the wrestling room, like, outwork your opponent. Uh, it's actually, I think back to seeing that sign. I had no idea about MRV or anything back when I was that age. But thinking back to it now, it's a comical relation to MRV. But can you imagine if your opponent's MRV is just genetically higher than yours? Be like, outwork him. Like, that's a bad idea. Don't do that. So training is all about pushing real hard. And then when you really get fatigued, really pulling back for long enough to where really your fatigue comes down. Because if you just had a meter on you, it'd be easy if we just all had a dial in our head. We could close our eyes and see our fatigue dial. It's just very objective. It's like, you know, how much fuel do you get at the gas station, at the petrol station when you stop? I don't know. Usually, if you're on a long road trip, you get a full tank. Can you imagine being like, we'll save 30 seconds if I pull out the pump right now? <laughs> okay, really? That, really? That's the, the situation we're at? And when you think about productive training and being good at bodybuilding, it takes decades. You know, Jeff Alberts over here is like fucking 100 years old, more jacked than all of us. I, I watch his videos and I'm like, fuck. <laughs> like, he's like 50 and he's drug free and he's fucking jacked and lean. I'm like, God damn it, what am I taking all this gear for? But, uh, you know, this shit isn't built overnight, man. And like, can you imagine if Jeff Alberts like, he's like, hey, like, what's the best thing you've ever done in your career? It's like one time I'm supposed to deload for a week fucking took half a week instead, bro. That's over 38 years that I've been lifting. That's a really sealed deal. <laughs> no way. But if you do a lot of those half weeks and not the whole weeks, you won't have Jeff Albert's career. You will not be training for 38 fucking years and peak when you're 55. You will be training for 15 and then tear your pack off the bone and you'll be done with the sport because you have too much fatigue. So really, and it sucks. Just like you said, it's not intuitive. It blows. 
but you really got to do have to take your foot off the pedal and for quite some time you got to feel like you're you're out of the game every now and again like i've, I've said this before on a podcast i think with you like i'll have times in my uh active rests where i'll go off with my friends that don't even lift weights we'll go camping or something i'll lift weights for a whole week and i'll eat pure fuck all like i'll eat protein honestly mostly because i just like to do it and it's habit but like i'll eat cheese whiz i'll be hanging out with melissa davis who is a cheese fetishist and she'll have cheese flavored chips with cheddar cheese and cheese whiz sprayed on top pure nonsense right and that kind of stuff when you come back from five days of that you're reborn you literally feel like a noob to the sport and it fuels you for another half year of unreal prep versus if i was like fuck that fuck my friends grind i'm in the gym 24 7 three months of that later and you're like i don't even want to be in the sport anymore there you got to take a break yeah very well said mike awesome uh we get to one more question that is from brett mcgee and he has asked how much time should you give yourself between contest preps would it be different between natural and enhanced athletes not really people say that but um it's really just what kind of costs you want to pay. If you want to make gains between preps uh, as a natural, I think a year between preps is really good for a real solid game. If you want to make more gains, you can take two and three years between preps. But I think if someone has two contests per year spread evenly, so like one every six months, you make some gains as a natural, but man, you're really cutting, you're really shooting yourself in the foot. So one, one contest per year is really good. Two is fine. Um, you make slow games, but you'll make better games if it's just one a year, very likely. Um, any more than two a year, spread around. Of course, if you do like a contest prep season uh, and then you hit like three or four shows in a row and then back off, like that's still it's still a year, you know. But if you if you, if you you compete like equidistantly three times through the year as a natural, you could probably forget about putting on any, any muscle unless you're a beginner. If you're a enhanced it's the, the same exact policy applies except you can gain some muscle competing up to twice a year maybe even three times a year but it's a vast expense of your health <laughs> so if you're not an idiot and you care about eventually not dying at age 48 or some shit from some kind of blood clot shit you picked up with drugs then you will still follow the natural rules of twice a year is okay but not great once a year is great and sometimes even stepping away from the stage and it, this is actually a really cool thing you know, sometimes you know looking up to your heroes seeing how they actually live is disappointing this is one of those that i think pays off pretty well especially if you follow the right people um on instagram you'll see these top guys because you always think like man these guys are always competing they're always in shape like are they really because yeah some of the guys are and some of the guys aren't so what about the guys that aren't like uh, there's people right now that I'm familiar with um, that haven't competed in two or three years and they're top competitors and they're, they're in their off seasons, two or three fucking years of off season. They come back way bigger. And a lot of guys who compete all the time are getting bigger all the time. And to those of us who are in the know, like, yeah, that guy's been running trend for like a year and a half straight. But right about now he's going to be posting from the hospital bed and he's like, hey, ran into some health trouble. And the fucking shit you did. So... It's a situation where, yeah, like, again, enhanced people can get away with all kinds of stuff at the massive long-term cost. So I think if you're competing twice a year, that's a lot. Uh, at two different times of the year, 
right? Um, if you're competing once a year, that's, that's pretty good. And if you really need to push the mass, sometimes you take more than a year. Um, and and it's, in some ways, that's especially true with drugs, because with drugs, you, you can't simply just, after a contest prep, you can't go right into a long off-season. You will die <laughs> from too much drugs. So that somewhere in there, you have to have a month or two or even three of like much reduced use or no use at all to really take a break and then push into an off-season. Jeff, there's lots of momentum involved and proper intake of, of enhancements and there's sometimes things don't happen. You can't just do an eight-week muscle gain phase and get a lot out of it. That really shit needs to sort of pick up. There's a bunch of stuff like that. So just to bring up two compounds like Boldeno uh, and Equipoise, really people don't, don't really feel like it's doing anything until they're like 16 weeks into the shit. Like, what are you going to do? Take EQ for three weeks? That's not going to work. And then growth hormone is a really good example. High-dose growth hormone, as Matt Jansen said on your, your very podcast, is it reliably adds a shitload of muscle over the long term if the anabolics are present. But like it doesn't do it quickly. It just sort of happens real slow. So if you're an off-season bodybuilder and you want to make really big gains and you're even enhanced, you gotta take you gotta take a year away from the stage, away from the stage, which, which doesn't mean you compete every year. It means you compete every year and a half or something like that. And and then that's when the results really happen. So the it's the same for nationals and enhanced, I think generally, except you can push the pace more when you're enhanced and compete more frequently without paying a uh, high or any acute price, short-term price, and pay a real big long-term price. So, you know, I'm not here to preach morality to people. I don't think it's in the cards for everyone to live a long time and live healthy in their older years, but you might have some different ideas about that once you get older. So uh, just just know that. Yeah, well said. That's very interesting, actually. And I, I guess part of, um, I wonder if part of it relates to those who do end up taking really long preps, stay lean for a very long time. They almost probably have to then take longer to recover so they can't do that but when you said like the way Jarrah is doing it or like my prep is like 20 weeks or something and i can come in and out quickly that recovery process is just it's way less damaging in a sense so it's much easier to recover um and i guess females in particular might have to be careful with some of you see it's like a classic bikini competitors competing too often not actually recovering from shows and then Having Anna Maria, they, they run into way worse, Steve, because then they run into hormonal issues that affect yeah. their bone health and stuff in the long term. And uh, females playing the game intelligently get nice and fat in the off season to be female again in a, in a hormonal sense. Yeah. So that's a whole other ball game where females got to be real careful. If I was a female, I would compete in clusters only, uh, and then take a year and a half off, and then cluster, 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 and a year and a half off, uh, and then in, during that time off, getting nice and nice and thick. To get all the hormones right again to become hormonally female and secrete estrogen and get your period uh, the thing is unfortunately females have more fat phobia probably even than males in the sport uh, probably in general too so when females finally get bikini looking uh, a lot of them don't want to give that up and they continue to stay amenorrhea period for a long time and that ends up impacting them substantially and probably hurts muscle growth too so sure that's a whole other whole other podcast we could do about uh, how females should approach the sport so cool Awesome. Mike, thank you so much for your time. I know people really appreciate it. Uh, have you got any kind of big projects on the way? Or is it still YouTube and uh, kind of catching Tons up over projects. there? projects. are all top secrets. So I can't discuss them all. No. <laughs> um, awesome. Mike, thank you so much for coming on as always. Definitely check out everything that Mike is doing. We'll, as always, have that old link below. Um, and we'll catch you on the next episode. Take care.
So I'm Steve Hall, founder of Revive Stronger and a coach of Revive Stronger. My name is Pascal Floor. I'm the co-owner of Revive Stronger and also a coach, of course. Revive Stronger has probably been going solidly for three years, probably roughly about three years. Revive Stronger to me, it is becoming kind of my child, my foster child. It's the gathering and getting together of like-minded people. We've been expanding the coaching team, which is helping us help more people, uh, but each coach can only help a certain number of people. Right now, it's all over the place. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, but there isn't that community aspect behind that. And so the next step for us is developing a membership site. So basically we want to create a family and a community that is then benefiting from another. A really cool community for people within our little niche is gonna be a website. They will get early access to our podcast. You can access us, ask us questions, the community aspect. We have a forum there, you can ask questions, but also you can, you can lock your journey. It's also gonna be courses on there, courses, presentations on different topics. Discount of past seminar footage. We will log our journey as well. We'll start vlogging. We're gonna have documentaries, our entire athletic journey. Furthermore, they get access to an exercise video library. The exercises that we love for hypertrophy and maximizing hypertrophy, we're gonna go through those in depth, telling you how to execute them. We kept them concise and also mobile friendly so that you can watch them in between your sets. I'm super excited to grow this community. The amount of value that we're gonna be delivering is huge. And I'd love you to be part of it. You will get so much out of that. I'll see you inside.